Okay. The reason I didn't rush out this morning, and took me a bit of time to come out, is that I'm conscious of what I've been sent to do. To preach the Word of God is a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I'm conscious of the responsibility that I have Amen. to share God's Word with you. It's not something that we can rush into. It's a bit like marriage. If, when you're getting married, you have to take your time, be prepared. It's not something you rush into. Preaching is the same. No one should ever rush into preaching or teaching because it's a responsibility that God has given. And this morning I'm conscious of that. I'm conscious of the Word of God. We all need to be conscious of what we do. Because God has given to each of us a great responsibility. It's no coincidence that when Paul prayed, he prayed regarding giving. (coughs) The giving of our gifts to God. And also this morning... We remember the gift of the Son of God that he gave himself to us and for us. Because I also want to speak about giving this morning. I want to speak about the giving of ourselves to God. But before I do that, I just want to read two scriptures to you, just to understand the context in which I'm speaking. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Matthew 9.29 says, this is a situation where two blind men came to Jesus and requested for him to heal them. And he asked them, do you believe? And they said, yes, we do believe. And Matthew 9.29 says, Then he, Jesus, touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. So what is the connection between these two scriptures? Well, all scripture is God-breathed, has been inspired by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But the scripture can only and will only be effective in our lives 
according to our faith. According to our faith, let it be done unto us. The word of God is only effective to us and in us as we receive it by faith. So this morning, God has something to say to us and for us. And as we receive what he has to say to us and for us, we need to receive it by faith. And then it will do us good. If we hear it and do not receive it by faith, it won't be of any benefit to us. So as you hear God's word this morning, will you, do you receive it by faith? Will you? Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. Then I'll begin. I just want to establish that before I begun. Okay. Regarding this concept, this idea of giving of ourselves to God. We're going to have a look at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. These will be our main scriptures, but obviously we'll look at other scriptures as we continue. But we're going to start here. This is what we want to look at. I'll read them first, then we're going to go through them and see what they mean to us and for us. This is Paul speaking to the church at Rome, the Christians at Rome, but also speaking to us. Yes? Therefore, I urge you, brothers, sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, your reasonable act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Okay, as we go through the two verses, we're going to point out five different aspects. First of all, God's mercy, the offering of our bodies, not conforming, being transformed, and testing and approving what God's will is. So let's begin at the beginning therefore Paul says I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy so this is not a polite request it's an instruction Paul isn't making a suggestion he's giving an instruction to the church to the Christians at Rome and also to us. It's a matter of urgency. That's why he's urging them. It's a matter of the utmost importance. That's why he's urging them. (coughs) 
And why is he urging them? What is he urging them to do and to be? First of all, he says, it's in view of God's mercy. What Paul is urging those Christians and us to do, we'll see what he wants us to do. But he wants us to do it in view of God's mercy, in response to God's mercy. Because everything that we do as Christians should be in response to God. It shouldn't be because I think it's a good idea, or somebody else thinks it's a good idea. It should be because I'm responding to God. Everything I do as a Christian should be in response to God. So Paul is telling these Christians, what I'm going to tell you to do, do it in view of God's mercy. So what what is this mercy? What's he referring to? Let's go back to Romans 11.32. He's just been speaking to them. In fact, the whole of Romans is to do with God's <coughs> salvation. Romans speaks about man's sin, God's salvation, God's mercy, God's grace, God's restoration. So Paul is speaking in regard to God's dealing with man, how he has dealt with man's sin. And Paul says, in view of God's mercy... And Romans 11.32 says, For God has bound all men, men being men and women, over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. Is it God's intention to bind us into disobedience? Well, no. That's not God's intention. We are disobedient of our own accord. That's our choice. What it means is that in our disobedience, we are kept bound. Sin is a form of bondage, isn't it? Sin binds me. It restricts me. And I am kept there by God. He allows it so that he may have mercy on me. So that he may have mercy on us all. If we weren't kept bound in this disobedience, there would be no need for God's mercy. So because of his great love, with which he's loved us, he has mercy on us. Because each of us were, are in a predicament because of sin. We are kept in bondage, but because of God's great love, he came to release each of us. Because of his great mercy, he's released us from our sin and the consequence of our sin. So Paul says, in view of this mercy which we each have received, this is what you must do. And we have received God's mercy, haven't we? He's a merciful, loving God. And each of us has received that mercy. And in view of his mercy, this is what we must do. Romans speaks about God's (laughs) wrath against mankind, God's righteous judgment, the Jews and the law, God's faithfulness, That none is righteous and righteousness through faith. But most of all, Romans speaks of God's mercy and his love. And each of us has received that mercy and love. So in view of that mercy, what ought we to, to do? Well, Paul tells us. He says, offer your bodies 
as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, your reasonable act of worship. Our bodies are offered to God as living sacrifices. Our bodies represent the totality of who we are. Obviously, I can't offer my body to God as a living sacrifice if I'm not offered to God. My body can't be separated from me. I can't be separated from my body. If I offer my body to God, it means, first of all, I've offered myself to God. So Paul is saying, offer yourself to God. It's just that our bodies represent the physical manifestation of our inward selves. My body and what my body does represents who I am and what I do. If I'm loving, how else do you know that I'm loving except you see what I do? If I'm kind, how else do you know that I'm kind except you see what I do? And what I do, my love, my kindness is expressed in what my body does. Is that true? Really, you don't know who I am unless you see what I do. Is that true? I might tell you I'm a lovely person, <laughs> but you'll judge, be the judge of that when you see what sorts of things I do. Is that true? So before I can offer my body to God, I must be offered to God. My body comes along with it. So the totality of my being must be offered to God. I can't partially offer myself to God. It's all or nothing, isn't it? I can't give part of myself to God. I must give everything to him. And my body represents who I am and what I am. When I offer my body, it means that I offer myself. I become a living sacrifice which is both holy and pleasing to God. And it's God who makes it holy. It's not my own holiness. I have no holiness other than the holiness that God gives me. So it's holy, my sacrifice, which is offered to God myself, because God makes it holy. And it's pleasing in his sight. He takes pleasure in my offering. That's good, isn't it? That God takes pleasure in me. What is there in me that God should take pleasure? But he does. God delights in us. Isn't God wonderful? That he could find something to delight in us. I'm not trying to put us down. But who are we that God should delight in us? But God takes pleasure in us. And this is our spiritual, our reasonable act of worship. When I offer my body, myself to God, it is received by God as an act of worship. So if you're not sure about worship and how I should worship, offer yourself to God. That's an act of worship. Simple as that. You don't have to go into church and sing songs, throw your arms up. This is all good. Nothing wrong with that. But to worship God, first of all, offer yourself to God. That's reasonable. He says it's, it's an appropriate response to God's mercy. Since God has been merciful to me, surely I want to respond to him. Love should always be responded to, shouldn't it? Yes. 
If you receive or someone offers you love, it will be a terrible thing to reject that love. Don't you think? Yes. At the very least, acknowledge it. And at the very least, we ought to acknowledge God's mercy and his love by responding in such fashion that we offer ourselves. Since he's offered himself first to us, it's only reasonable that we offer ourselves to him. <coughs> Would you agree? Yeah. Correct. To sacrifice is to make an offering. It's going to cost me something. Sacrifice always entails a cost. You can't sacrifice anything unless there's a cost to it. If there's no cost, there's no sacrifice. Yes? In the Old Testament, an animal being offered as a sacrifice died. It paid the ultimate price. When we offer our bodies, ourselves to God, it is as a living sacrifice. We, we don't die in that sense. We sacrifice ourselves continually to God. We offer ourselves to God continually. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were specific. They were for a specific purpose. There were burnt offerings, cereal or grain offerings, peace or fellowship offerings, sin offerings, and guilt or repayment offerings. But each sacrifice was for a specific purpose. When someone came to the priest and offered something, and the, if the priest should ask, what is the purpose of your sacrifice? If the person said, well, no particular reason, I just thought I'd bring it. It wouldn't make any sense. The sacrifice was brought for a purpose. And if there was no purpose, you wouldn't offer a sacrifice. Because to a certain extent, your animals, your livestock, were your wealth. And it, was, it would be used to provide for your family. So no one would bring a sacrifice for no particular reason. Because that, that was their wealth. That was their provision. You had to bring it for a specific purpose because God had asked you to bring it. And the same with us. God asked each of us to be a living sacrifice because God has a specific purpose for each of us. Amen. Our offering is both meaningful and significant. We don't offer ourselves to God for no particular purpose, it's too costly. No one serves God unless they have really determined to. Because it costs too much. To really serve God would cost you too much. You can't... Okay, I'll serve God. Okay. It wouldn't make any sense. It costs too much to offer yourself to God. It has to be a determined choice that you make. So our offering to God is both meaningful and significant because God has called each of us to and for a purpose. So I make my sacrifice because God has a purpose in it. Let's offer our bodies, ourselves to God as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God which is our spiritual, our reasonable act of worship. And then Paul goes on. After we'd offered ourselves to God, he says, do not conform any longer 
to the pattern of this world. What does he mean, the pattern of this world? It's the way the world functions, the way the world operates, the way the world does things, the point of view of the world, the priorities of the world. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. The pattern of the world, the prevailing culture, how we do things, what we think is important, the continuing attitudes that the world has, their way of thinking, their way of doing. Paul says, don't conform any longer to this pattern. Why? Because in scripture the world always stands in opposition to God to the kingdom of God and to his purposes. The world doesn't mean the people in the world. It means the way the world operates. So Paul tells us, don't conform any longer to this pattern. Because the world stands against God, stands against his purposes, stands against his kingdom. So Paul says, do not conform any longer. To conform is to comply with accepted standards or customs. To comply is to act in accordance or in agreement with. So if I conform to the world, I'm complying with the world. I'm acting in agreement and in conformity with what the world is. Paul says, do not conform any longer. J.B. Phillips, you know the writer of the Phillips Bible? He puts it this way. Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould. If you let it, the world will squeeze you into its mould. Eventually, you'll conform to the world. Paul says, don't conform any longer. Why? Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 7.31, For the world in its present form is passing away. James tells us, James 4.4, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? 1 John 2.15.17, do not love the world or anything in the world. Why? The world is passing away. Since we have offered our bodies, ourselves as living sacrifices to God, we should no longer conform to the pattern of this world to the prevailing culture of the world. The world in its present form is passing away. Mm-hmm. Why would you conform to something that's passing away? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense, isn't it? Rather conform, conform to the kingdom which is coming. We have a choice to make, don't we? Mm-hmm. We can conform to the pattern of the world or we can conform to the principles of the kingdom of God. And that's the choice we need to make each day. We conform to one thing or another. As people, we're always conforming to something. There's always something having an impact on our lives, affecting our lives, what we do, what we say, what we think. It's our choice as to what we allow 
to have an impact and influence on our lives as Christians. Amen, yes. So do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Are you understanding what Paul is saying? Are you receiving what God is saying? And since we don't conform to the pattern of this world, what does Paul tell us? He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by a new, a different way of thinking. Different from the pattern or the thinking of this world. Why is it so important, this idea of thinking? The renewal of the mind. You notice he doesn't say by the renewal of the heart. Or by the renewal of the spirit. He says by the renewal of the mind. It's important because it's important what we think. What we think affects our lives. In fact, the writer in Proverbs says, Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinketh in his heart... So is he. He's speaking about a particular sort of person. But it applies to us all, to everyone. It's a universal principle. As we think in our hearts, so are we. We are formed. Who we are is formed by how and what we think. Our thoughts determine who we are. What we are like and what we do. Our thoughts determine our attitudes our behaviour, our conversation, and our motivation. In fact, I am what I think. You are the sum total of all of your thoughts. Whatever your thought, since you began to think, you are a product of that thinking. Who you are today is a product of all the thoughts you've ever had. So be careful what you think, because it affects who you are. You are the sum total of everything that you think. For whether for good or whether for ill, you are what you think. That's why our thinking needs to be transformed. Because as our thinking is transformed, so we are transformed. We are transformed according to what we think. So Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a different way of thinking. So it's a different way of being. Philippians 2.5 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And in fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says, but we have the mind of Christ. So we need to think as Christ thinks. Let this mind be in you. That's the King James Version, which was also in Christ Jesus. NIV says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitudes are the way you see the world, your perception of reality, how you relate to others. How you relate to God. That's your attitude. Your attitude is your stance. Your position. Let your position 
Let your attitude, let your stance, let your perception of the world, let your perception of God, let your perception of others be that of Christ Jesus. And we take captive every thought so that we might make it obedient to Christ. Any thoughts that you have that are not in agreement with Christ, reject them. Reject them. Any thinking that takes you away from Christ and his word, reject it. Take it captive. It's as if thoughts come into our mind. Before you're allowed to percolate your thinking, take it captive. Test that thought. Where is it coming from? What is the purpose of that thought? Where is this thinking leading to? And if you find that that thought is not obedient to Christ, his ways and his word, reject it out of hand. Don't hold on to it. It's important because so many thoughts come to us from all sorts of sources. Online, books, magazines, other people, newspapers, television. Wherever you are, whatever you do, you're always bombarded with thoughts and ideas, concepts, other people's propositions. Before you receive them and accept them for yourself, test them. What is the source of this thinking? Where is it coming from? What is the purpose of this thinking? Where is it leading me to? <clears throat> and if you find it leads you away from God, reject that thought out of mind. Don't hold on to it. Take it captive and make it obedient. If it can't be made obedient to Christ... Reject it. Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is a renewed mind. It's a new way of thinking. It's God's way of thinking. And if we want to have our lives transformed, we need to change the way we think. Because our thinking determines our life, our living. We are transformed by having the mind of Christ, by thinking as Christ thinks, by having the same attitude as he has. What do you think? Do you think that's a good idea? That we ought to change the way we think? To say the same attitude as Christ? I think that's a good thought to have. So hold on to that one. So, be not conformed to this pattern of this world. Be transformed in your thinking. And once you've done that, Paul says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. So what does it mean to test and approve what God's will is? Well, it's not an academic exercise. It doesn't mean I take the Bible, love one another, tick that one off, be kind to one another, tick that one off, be humble, tick. That's not testing and proving God's will. 
I'm not checking the Bible to see what's God's will and what isn't God's will. We test and approve God's will by doing it. I prove what is God's will when I hear the word of God, I obey the word of God, and I find, yes, this is God's will. It's a practical demonstration, not an academic exercise. It's not a tick box. We test and approve what God's will is by constant and continuous obedience to God's word and by constant and continuous obedience to God's spirit. In other words, it's not so much that I test and approve God's will prior to me doing it. I test and approve it by doing it. Does that make sense? Then I understand there's one thing to read something in the Bible and say, yes, that seems all right. Yeah, I must love one another. I haven't really tested or approved anything, have I? It's only as I love that I test and approve. Yes, that's the right thing to do. That is God's will. So I test and approve God's will by doing it. As I obey God's word and obey his spirit. Doing God's will is a lifestyle choice. It's not an abstract philosophy. It's not something I think about. Oh yeah, seems reasonable. Love one another, yeah, that's, that's fine. No, no, no. It's not thinking about it. It's doing it, isn't it? Yes. It's a lifestyle choice. It's something I do continuously and constantly. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. I don't test and approve God's will by thinking about it. I test and approve God's will by doing it. And I find it to be good, pleasing and perfect. Do you find God's will to be good, pleasing and perfect? You should do. In fact, it's, it's the only thing to do. It's the only thing to be. There's really nothing else for us to do as Christians but to do God's will. Outside of God's will, really we're just wasting our time. If you do anything outside of God's will, we're really, it's just a waste of time. It has no eternal consequences. God's will has eternal consequences. And it's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. But what is God's will? How do we find God's will? And oft times, possibly, we can think of it in two ways. We can think of God's will as a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. I read my Bible, do this, don't do that. And I can think of God's will as things to do, and things not to do. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think that's a sort of on-the-surface way of looking at God's will. There's another way we can think of God's will, and that's maybe the idea of ministry. What does God want me to do? Does he want me to preach? Does he want me to teach? Does he want me to be an evangelist? Does he want me to be a missionary? Does he want me to be a pastor? Does he want me to make refreshments? Does he want me to serve communion? Does he want me to clean the toilets? 
What is God's will? Is it my ministry? Also, there's nothing wrong with that. But I want to maybe go a bit deeper than that. Than a list of do's and don'ts. And a ministry. Come with me to Philippians 2.5.8. Because what I want to suggest to you. That doing God's will. That Jesus is our supreme example. He said not my will. But yours be done. Speaking to the Father. So if I want to find God's will and how to do it. Jesus is my example, isn't he? So let's go to Philippians 2.5.8. How did Jesus regard doing God's will? And what did it mean to him? Time's going. So I'm not going to read it straight through first. I'm going to go through it step by step. Philippians 2.5 Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I cannot do God's will or even contemplate doing it with the wrong attitude. First of all, my attitude should be to do God's will. I should have the right attitude towards God before I could ever think of doing what he wants me to do. And what was Christ's attitude to the Father? Ultimately, it was an attitude of love and humility. And I cannot do God's will without an attitude of love and humility towards God. So my attitude... The way I regard God, the way I see him, my relationship to him, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's my starting point before I consider a list of do's and don'ts or what my ministry ought to be. First of all, I need to have the right attitude to my Father in heaven. Philippians 2.6 Since he had the right attitude, what did Jesus do? He did not consider equality with God Something to be grasped. That's having the right attitude. Though Jesus as the son of God. Had every privilege. Every right. He didn't consider it something to be held on to. To grasp means to hold on to. He relinquished his rights. His privileges as the son of God. To serve his father. To do the will of the father. If he had held on to his rights. And his privileges, Jesus could never have come to earth to die. To be humiliated and to die a cruel death on the tree. He had to relinquish his rights and his privileges. And before I can ever think of doing the will of God, I have to be able to relinquish my rights and my privileges that I have as a person. You know, I was thinking as I was preparing this, I don't want to seem that I'm that old... But I was thinking, when I was younger, most people knew their, what their responsibilities were, but very few people talked about what their rights were. I don't know if you, someone my age, most people knew what they were responsible for doing, but very few people talked about what their rights were. Well, it's completely changed nowadays. 
Most everybody talks about what their rights are, but very few people know what their responsibilities are. But as a Christian, I ought to know what my responsibilities are and not to go around insisting upon my rights. Nothing wrong with having rights. I'm not saying anything wrong with that. But a Christian who insists on their rights and their privileges all the time, I suggest there's something wrong with that person. They've got the wrong attitude. As a Christian, I should, my priority should be not what are my rights, but what are my responsibilities. What has God called me to do? So Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. The will of God, doing the will of God is to do with service. God always calls me because he's got a purpose for me. And in doing that purpose, I serve. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and in doing that, he served. He served others, and he served the Father. He made himself nothing. Though he was the supreme Son of God, seated at the Father's right hand, with all the rights, privilege and authority, he made himself nothing. How many of us make ourselves nothing? Or do we always insist on who we are? Sometimes you hear people saying that, don't you? When they, perhaps they're in a shop or in a situation, they say, don't you know who I am? <laughs> well, who are you? <laughs> I'm a servant of God, that's who I am. People like to insist on their rights, who they are. Are you to treat me better than that? Don't you know who I am? I'm so and so. But as a servant, Jesus didn't insist on his rights. He became a servant. He came to serve, not to be served. And the same for us. We are also here to serve, not to be served. And how did he do that? Verse 8, he humbled himself. Humility is the mark of a Christian. Without humility, I cannot serve God. I cannot do the will of God. I cannot fulfill my purpose in God. I have to be humble. Humble is the baseline. Humility is the baseline. Everything else in my life must be built on humility. Without humility, there's no base for what I do. So Jesus humbled himself. And in humbling himself, he became obedient. But not only obedient, he became obedient to death. In other words, he chose death over disobedience. Going to the cross, when he said, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. What he was in fact is saying, I would rather die than be disobedient. Have you ever said that? I would rather die than be disobedient. Maybe we're not there yet, but that's where God is taking us. 
as we are being conformed to the image of the Son. We may have to say that one day, I would rather die than be disobedient. And in fact, it may not be physical death, but each day we have to die to ourselves, don't we? We have to say no to ourselves. We have choices to make. And each day we have to say no, because the scripture says each day we deny ourselves, we take up the cross, and we follow Christ. So each day we die to ourselves. We would rather die to ourselves than be disobedient to God. And it wasn't just any death. It was, it says, even death on a cross. The cross was the most humiliating and cruel death at that time. If you wanted to humiliate anyone and make them suffer in death, the cross was your choice. So Jesus, not only did he die, but he died in humiliation and he died in agony. But he chose that. He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He said, I would rather die this death for the purpose for which you sent me than be disobedient. And in doing that, he became God's perfect sacrifice. Isn't God good? Jesus went to the cross on our behalf and he became God's perfect sacrifice. So time is going, so let's conclude. What have we learned this morning? What has God said to us this morning? What have we received by faith? Because I trust everything that we've heard this morning, we have received it by faith. Because it comes from God, not from me. First of all, Paul says to the Romans and also to us. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, yourselves, as living sacrifices to God. Which is holy and pleasing to God. And this is our spiritual, our reasonable act of worship. In view of God's mercy, in view of his love, it's only reasonable that we should respond in this way. To offer ourselves to him. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Why? The world stands in opposition to God, to his purposes, and to his kingdom. In fact, the world in its present form is passing away. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Paul tells us, we have the mind of Christ. Not will have, not could have. Not should have, we have the mind of Christ. All we have to do is use that mind and think in that way. We have it already. We've received it. We just have to use it. We have the mind of Christ. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His perfect, good and pleasing will. And we do that by living in obedience to God's word and God's spirit. And as we do that, we will find that his will is good, pleasing and perfect. So this morning, I urge you, Paul was urging the Romans, 
I'm going to urge you now this morning to recognize, receive, embrace, and live in the will of God. To offer your bodies, yourselves, as living sacrifices to God. For this is both holy and pleasing to God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>